Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Either you are with us, or you are with the terrorists. If you've got health care already, then you can keep your plan if you are satisfied with it. Donald Trump is not going to be president of the United States. Take it to the bank. Together, we will make America great again. We shall never surrender. Never surrender. It's what you've been waiting for all day. Buck Sexton with America Now. Join the conversation. Call Buck toll-free at 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. The future of talk radio. Buck Sexton. Team Buck, welcome to the Freedom Hunt. Great to have you, as always. Honor and a privilege and a pleasure. I feel like I can't leave that out. Best part of my day every day, getting to hang out with all of you. Um, I, I wanted to start today by giving you a... Uh, a roadmap of where we're going together, because uh, I, I think you know how we're going to start. We're going to have to start with. Um, we're going to have to start with the NFL. So we'll get to that in a moment. But before uh, we get into that, I, I just wanted to say that we will also be covering the uh, Senate primary in Alabama tonight. Voting is happening tonight. The polls will be closing in just a bit. So we'll give you an update on that. Uh, we also uh, will be discussing uh, the New York Times trying to normalize communism at some level. And I will give you a, a historical perspective on one of the greatest tragedies and mass murders and uh, terrors of collectivism in the 20th century that should be right in the same conversation just just uh just up there with the holocaust with stalin's purges and uh, the soviet union's gulags and then mao's great leap forward so i will tell you a bit about that and i will i would wager that it will be information that you will have never heard before and that you will be somewhat astonished to hear and it's out there, and there are historians who have done the work and research, and I have read their stuff, I have listened to their lectures, and it's unbelievable. And that the New York Times would write an editorial, would publish something trying to find the bright, the bright side of communism in China, uh, and, and I'm talking about under Mao, is uh, utterly appalling and tells you a lot about where they are on collectivism and uh, we'll also follow up on the north korea discussion that i wanted to have with yesterday and did not uh, so that'll be in the second hour of the show and then uh, some updates as well on puerto rico so we've got we've got it as we always do i mean what the great advantage i have is by the time you listen to me by the time i come on on air here and get to spend time with you i have been reading and researching and thinking and reaching out to my contacts and sources all day I think of it as a great advantage. I know for some people they say, oh, well, I, I want to be the first one. No, I, anyone can be the first one to tell you this is the big headline of the day. I come to this show to tell you things you won't hear anywhere else, to give you background and perspective that you will not hear anywhere else. And so we will certainly be doing that tonight. But I, I cannot, I cannot ignore that the Single biggest story, the biggest conversation in the country right now, nor would I choose to ignore it because there are very interesting components of it. 
Um, but the fight over take a knee, the fight over this NFL protest, which has now spread and there are more professional athletes and there's even a member of Congress from uh, Texas who has taken a knee uh, on the floor of Congress. So, you know, this is now the center of our national conversation. For better or for worse, this is where we are, so let's just roll up our sleeves together and let's get into it a bit. Yesterday we had the basics of what happened over the weekend. Today we can dig a little deeper into maybe what's really what's really going on here. I should note that the president who has received criticism on this, people are trying to say, well, he's had so much focus on this and not Puerto Rico. Not a fair criticism in my estimation because everything that the federal government should be doing or is capable of doing, at least, with regard to Puerto, Rican, uh, Puerto Rico aid so far. My impression, based on the reporting that I'm reading, as well as speaking to people, including friends who are Puerto Rican, is that it is being done, but it's a terrible circumstance. That all said, the government, which is vast, also for better or for worse, the government can do more than one thing at a time. The government, in fact, as we know, is doing lots of stuff all the time, Really, the government's doing a lot of stuff it shouldn't be doing, but disaster relief and the president weighing in on matters of national politics and controversy, that is in the category of things the government should be doing. So let's dive into it now together. Uh, You have the president in response to those who are saying he should not focus on this, that this is not the concern uh, that he makes it out to be. Here's what the president had to say about this preoccupation accusation. Well, I wasn't preoccupied with the NFL. I was uh, ashamed of what was taking place because, to me, that was a very important moment. I don't think you can disrespect our country, our flag, our national anthem. Uh, To me, the NFL situation is a very important situation. I've heard that before about was I preoccupied. Not at all. Not at all. I have plenty of time on my hands. All I do is work. And to be honest with you, that's an important function of working. It's called respect for our country. President... Not backing down, which we wouldn't expect. This is President Trump, right? He's not going to back down. He is doubling. He is tripling down. He is all chips on the table on this. He is not backing off at all. He is making it clear that this is an issue um, of uh, real importance to him. And uh, we're seeing now that this has stretched out well be stretched well beyond just professional athletics you had representative i mentioned this briefly representative uh, democrat no surprise uh sheila jackson lee of texas who took a knee on the floor of the house last night in solidarity with the nfl here's what she had to say that is racism you cannot deny it you cannot run for it and i kneel in honor of them i kneel Yes, she she and kneeled. on this floor. She kneeled in. I kneel. Yeah. In honor of the First Amendment, I kneel because the flag is a symbol for freedom. I kneel because I'm going to stand against racism. This is largely now a debate, more like a fight, because it's pretty nasty. No one's really listening much to the other side. This is a fight over the symbolism and a fight over free expression. I should note that that's not how it started. So if we're having a debate over what the proper way to conduct oneself during the anthem and the flag, uh, let's understand that this came from 
a very specific set of accusations, uh, which also are tied to a political movement that has uh, been responsible for inciting violence with the Black Lives Matter movement. Not saying that everybody who's a part of it is violent by any means, but there have been individuals who have radicalized against the police who are part of Black Lives Matter. Uh, in fact, there were five Dallas police officers who were who were shot by such an individual. And as we noted yesterday, the NFL refused to allow the Dallas Cowboys to wear decals on their helmets to honor those police officers, uh, fallen officers, and to show their support for our law enforcement in this country. Uh, I should also know that last night, uh, right about when we were finishing up the show, uh, the Dallas Cowboys went on the field and they took a knee as a team, as well as with the owner, Jerry Jones, before the anthem. So, you know, we are now getting into the realm of semantics here, right? Is it Okay, it's not during the anthem, it's before the anthem, it's a little more respectful, it's a little... What are we really trying to accomplish here? And what I think you see, and this is why Trump refuses to back down even an inch on this, is that there are people who want to make this about very broad issues, for which I should note, there's no redress, there's no uh, metrics we can use that will ever tell us that we've accomplished the goal here. If the goal is that that every uh, individual across the country feels like they are treated fairly by the police, uh, we're never going to be there. We can only look at the statistics and the information that we have and the overwhelming uh, reality of law enforcement in this country and its interactions with all citizens and come to some conclusions. But this started, and this is what we've lost sight of now, and they're turning this into an anti-Trump uh, rally. There, there's a metamorphosis happening here in this political movement. There's a, there's a change of purpose that suits the purposes of the left. It's not going to be popular to be clearly protesting the flag or, or making a spectacle. That's what they're doing. Make a spectacle of oneself. Uh, during the national anthem at a professional football game. Uh, to do that and to have it be clear that this is because of um, opposition to police as systemically or systematically brutal against minorities across the country, that's going to be an unpopular position, not just for the NFL, I should note. And people are talking about boycotts and uh, a whole separate conversation to be had, and, and maybe we'll have this on the show later this week. In fact, I, I think we might, which is that the the NFL is also not putting out a particularly good product right now. Um, they're, it's it's not a good year for football in general. I think that's fair to say. And uh, when you add all the politics on top of it and the woes of ESPN being all politicized and uh, this is a, a a perfect storm of politicization that's happening right now in professional sports. But Trump isn't backing down on this because I think he recognizes that most of the when it comes to respecting the flag and when it comes to standing for the anthem or at least not making a spectacle of oneself during the anthem, you know, most people would uh, side with the administration on that. Or at least everyone that Trump cares about siding with him on that will side with him on that. And if there is a way for Trump to expose that there is still some uh, very profound 
anti-cop, anti-law enforcement animosity within the Democrat Party, within the Democrat base, and yes, within some of the communities that have been uh, increasingly polarized by identity politics that the Democrat Party is always pushing. Uh, people should know about that. We, we would want to know that this is the feeling, um, that there is such a, a clear uh, anti-law enforcement sentiment among individuals like uh, Colin Kaepernick. Uh, you had uh, Rob O'Neill, who's a, a great guy, by the way, uh, who's often on Fox News. He's the, the, the one who, the Navy SEAL who shot Osama bin Laden. Uh, he had the following to say about Kaepernick. Where's he playing today? Oh, that's right. He doesn't have a job. Um, How does the military feel? I mean, look, look at this guy. He, he, gave a, he gave a protest about discrimination, anti-discrimination, wearing a Fidel Castro shirt. Yeah. Are you out of your mind? You know? Yeah. If you go, take no, a history I, class no, ever in your life. Talking about. Yeah. I mean, it's, just, it's the wrong way to do it. Every widow I've talked to, every veteran I've talked to, regardless of what you say, you can't take a knee for the national anthem and say, but I support the troops. No, you don't. It doesn't matter what color you are when you're in Afghanistan and you get killed. You come back in red, white, and blue. Well said. And the the choice of when the protest is happening, the choice of taking the knee, all of this cannot be ignored. It is being done specifically because it's going to upset people who feel that the flag and the anthem is about honoring uh, this country and honoring those who fight for the country. Um, I, I just I, I noted I was saying this before. And I actually just saw this now. The that direct I was I was thinking about this before. Direct TV allows some NFL refunds after anthem controversy. Uh, they'll get, let some customers get refunds for their Sunday Sunday ticket package of NFL games if they cite players' national anthem protests. Here, here's my sense of this. Football right now as a product is already in a downswing, meaning it's just not a it's not as compelling a league right now as it has been in the past for a whole bunch of reasons that maybe we'll talk about later. Um, but part of football's rise in this country to be really the the primary uh, national sport. It's it's the biggest, has the biggest viewership. It, these guys make a tremendous amount of money, the players. Uh, part of that has been that it has done a very good job of aligning itself with America, with the troops. I spoke about this at some in some uh, length yesterday. But once that starts to fray, once it starts to feel like there is a lack of connectivity between the people, the multi-million, yes, this matters, the multi-millionaire athletes in the NFL and the vast bulk of the American people who have tremendous respect for the accomplishments, the athletic accomplishments of those in the NFL. We understand this. I mean, they're, just to get into the NFL, you have to be a, a superstar within the sport, if you look at this more broadly. Uh, but we also expect that they, because we've been led to believe that they support the troops, they love this country, they believe in America, and they have a positive view of the country and if they don't we want to know that and i think that's what president trump understands here which is keep pushing on this see where this goes the american people can live without the nfl I, this may be a shock for some to hear but you know some sports come and go they wane in popularity they, they're not as they're not as big as they used to be this is there's a cyclical nature to this and I think the NFL has started to think that it is the, the players and the coaches think that they are untouchable when it comes to the popularity and the financials behind their sport. They will find out they are very wrong. 
if they continue this. I just knew this intuitively, but uh, I see here there is actual data. Buck Sexton back with you now, by the way. Uh, the data says that, hat tip daily caller on this one, 64% of Americans say NFL players should stand for the anthem. 64% of Americans. So there you go. A, a solid majority uh, believe that Americans uh, believe that NFL players should stand. A much more interesting statistic would be what percentage of people who watch the NFL think that NFL players should stand? Because I believe this is one of the big disconnects that many of these players and coaches and officials like Goodell, the NFL com- you know, commissioner, one thing they don't seem to understand is that uh, their, their viewing audience includes a whole lot of people that they may not agree with very much politically. There are, in fact, a whole lot of Trump voters who watch professional football. And I think that you would see that a lot of those social justice warriors on the left who aren't necessarily uh, willing to concede that this protest is disrespectful uh, to the troops or is disrespectful to the country. I wonder how many of them actually watch football. I'm sure a, a lot of them do. But once you start crunching those numbers... Uh, this is not this is not a path that the NFL should go down. And Trump, I, I there was uh, who was it? Keith Keith Olbermann. You sir should resign. Uh, Keith Olbermann. It's still the best thing Ben Affleck has ever done was when he did the Keith Olbermann impersonation on Saturday Night Live. Uh, I, I mean, yeah, I liked uh, I liked Goodwill Hunting. I actually thought Ben Affleck was very good in the movie Boiler Room which is a pretty good stock scam movie if you haven't seen it. Uh, but the best thing he's ever done, in my opinion, was when he played Keith Olbermann. He was like, Miss Precious Perfect. Uh, and he was just, just Keith. the fact that Keith Olbermann was so popular as a TV personality, everyone that I, I've ever known in the business who's interacted with him is like, oh, stay away. Um, you know, not, not someone you want. Wow, we're already in the next segment? I don't even know. we got a lot of lines left. We'll take, uh, we'll take some calls. Um, I don't even know what I'm going to say now. Miss Precious Perfect in SNL and Keith Olbermann. And then I got distracted by the fact that we got lines lit and we got to take some of those calls. Um, but, uh, yeah, the NFL. Oh, people were saying that Trump is going to be broken by this one. You know, Trump can't. How dare he stand up against the NFL? Now, a lot of Trump voters are the, are the people who watch the NFL, actually. And they don't like this. They don't like what's going on. And uh, it's hard to pay your players... 10, 15, 20, 30 million dollars a year if you have a 20 or 30% drop in TV ratings, which that could happen. I wouldn't be all that surprised. If this keeps up, you will see some real financial consequences. He's holding the line for America. Buck Sexton is back. So we've got uh, Hall of Fame NBA coach Greg Popovich weighing in on the NFL take a knee situation as well. Here's what he decided to tell the American people. Go for it. Comfortable element in the discourse for anything to change. You know, whether it's the LGBT movement or, you know, uh, women's suffrage, uh, race, it doesn't matter. Uh, People have to be made to feel uncomfortable and especially white people because we're comfortable. We still have no clue of what being white means. And 
if if you read some of the you know uh, recent literature, you'll realize it really is no such thing as whiteness. Uh, but we kind of made it up. Okay, uh, okay. I mean, I gotta say, Popovich sounding like he he's auditioning for the role of adjunct professor at uh, Wesleyan College, you know, sociology or something, a sociology department. I mean, what is this all of a sudden? First of all, white people have to be made uncomfortable. He is a coach of a professional sports team. Professional sports are a form of entertainment. I, I don't really need to be lectured by someone who is part of the entertainment business about how I need to feel uncomfortable because I'm white. And, oh, by the way, there's no such thing as whiteness. Somebody make sense of that one for me. So there's no such thing as whiteness, but white people need to feel bad about themselves. There's no such thing as whiteness, but if you're white, you have privilege and, oh, also you should feel guilty. But I thought, can I be in the not, can I not identify as white? In fact, I've just realized, everyone listening, I've got, I've got you covered. I have you covered on this. Uh, all you have to do is not identify as white, and you don't have to worry about white privilege anymore. And if you want, throw in a they. Say that you want to identify as they and not white. But what do you identify as? I am uh, n- non-racial. There you go. You, you could say you're post-racial. You're, you're beyond that. We're all a mix. Now you could get into, which, and this is actually, you know, this is true if you go into the uh, biology of uh, human race, but point I'm trying to make here is it just all collapses into incoherence. It's nonsense. It doesn't make any sense. It's intellectual garbage or it's garbage in the tra- with the trappings of intellectualism. I mean, Popovich was doing a great impression there of a dumb person thinking he's sounding smart on an issue he knows nothing about. There you go. If you, if you read the research on it, it is. But look at these coaches. Coaches for all the NFL teams, NBA teams, you know, they're all in on this social justice stuff, too. What are they all upset about? Well, I feel like they realize that if they get caught in the wrong moment on this, the uh, the wrong soundbite on TV and their players may turn on them. So how much of this is really their beliefs versus how much of this is driven by their desire to be uh, able to keep their jobs? I don't know. And in that in that regard, I have some sympathy for them, right? I don't with some of these NFL coaches, some of these NFL coaching staffs, some of the players. We found this out about Pittsburgh. There were players on the Pittsburgh team who wanted to stand for the anthem, but they were bullied, convinced. I, I don't know. I'm not there, right? But somehow they weren't able to do what they wanted to do. They caved to peer pressure. Now these are these are big men. I mean, these are not, you know, literally they're large. Strong, powerful men. So I, I don't. This isn't like we're a bunch of high school kids. Oh, peer pressure! But they did. They gave to peer pressure. All right, I, I'm talking, and we got tons of lines lit. So let's get into some of those calls now. But just the Popovich thing was, you know, oh yeah, white people need to be made uncomfortable. That's gonna. This is great. Let, let, let's get some uh, racial grievance politics from uh, Greg Popovich. That's a great idea. They want, to, they want to destroy these multi-billion dollar industries that are built on Americans of all creeds, colors, backgrounds, you name it, just trying to enjoy themselves and just trying to get excited about something or trying to forget about their problems for a few hours. That shouldn't be too much to ask. And we should hold them to that business model. We really should. 
if this crap doesn't stop, I'm not watching the NFL. I'm not somebody who runs to the boycott thing, but I'm also not going to sit there and be berated or insulted by people on TV, right? If I want that, I'll watch MSNBC. All right. Uh, Sam in North Carolina listening on the iHeart app. What's up, Sam? Buck, how's it going, buddy? I'm good, man. Thank you for your call. Hey, just a couple things. Number one, Trump is consistent. He is saying America first, whether it's on the football field, whether it's in the schools, whether it's at war, right? So you get, you got to give him that for sure. And believe it, if the owners, the owners know this is about money. So they're squirming in their seats right now thinking about how this is going to affect their viewership and their sponsorship. They think, they know that they're not in the majority as far as America goes. This is absolutely ludicrous. Now you have this lady down in Texas kneeling as they do uh, uh, the pledge or the Pledge of Allegiance, whatever they're doing in that state, before their, their meeting. Where is it going to end, right? And think about this in these terms. If the players, excuse me, if the owners really, really had the guts and they weren't worried about what would happen with their team, one of them would be hiring Colin Kaepernick. His agent tried to get him on with the Ravens, with the Jets, and what did they say? Sorry, we're not interested. And we all know that even though he may be a lousy American, he plays some pretty good football. And he had a couple. Of, didn't he have kind of a bad year? I don't know. I'm not. An, I don't even pretend to be. He did. Not... Yeah, the last couple of years has been kind of because I think he's been defocused. But that's the whole issue here is that they're going to defocus what they're out there to do, and that's entertaining. Can I also say, Sam? You know, there's there's a lot of look at all these. Wasn't Tom Brady a backup for what was it? Drew Bledsoe? Is that right? Yeah. I mean, there are many oh, yeah. more incredibly talented people out there who can take some of these positions, starting quarterback in the NFL. Then there are actually open slots. And what you see time and again is that the mechanisms for sorting out who's the best from who's not are imperfect, meaning that oftentimes, you know, they're, you know, it's close in camp and they go with one player instead of another. And, you know, it's, it's, they're going with their gut a lot on who they're going to play, who they're not. So given that reality, why would you take a risk on a guy who's also, a political liability. I mean, you know, if you're talking about, you know, you Tom go. Brady, okay, he's like one of the best that's ever lived. So I guess you might want to take, but I don't think anyone's saying that about Colin Kaepernick, not even close. Nope. Nope. Yeah, Thank I hear you, man. Show, Thank you for calling in, Sam. It. I appreciate it. Shields high. Mike in Georgia on WMCD. Hey, Mike. Hey, man. How you doing? I'm all right. Thank you for your call. All right. Um, I just start off with saying that, you know, give a little background. Um, I was in the 10th Mountain Division Light Infantry. Um, I served in the Persian Gulf War. My brother, Danny, was in the, uh, 3rd Ranger, 3rd and 5th Ranger Battalion. He was a Somalia veteran. He was, he's actually in the book. Black Hawk uh, Down? You know, Black Hawk Down. Yeah. He's one of the Rangers that fought in that. You can look it up. He got a V device for the. Uh, well, thank thank for you Bauer. for your service and thank your brother. Yeah, and uh, my grandfather and his six brothers, every one of them was on the beach at Normandy. And I can tell you this, and now I grew up in, in, in West Texas, in Midland, Texas, uh, watching the Cowboys every Sunday. 
you know, when I, from a, from a small child and, uh, you know, I mean, that was just like ritual. Yeah. We'd eat Sunday dinner and we, and we would, we would watch the Cowboys. I hear you. I, I bet a lot of people listening right. might feel the same way. So what do you think about all this taking knee and disrespecting and, the anthem? Um, I, I, I'm, I'm telling you right now, my grandfather would not be watching the Cowboys anymore, even though that they what they did was the classiest uh, demonstration of all of the NFL teams. I mean, after all, yeah, it was. Be, it would look. They took a knee before. They took a knee before they, the anthem. So, if your still, problem is disrespecting the anthem, still, they they avoided they doing still, that. They still dropped the ball when it comes to the American flag and the given the proper respect that's that's uh, this due. I agree with you. I, I feel like we're now in this semantics game, right? I mean, you're taking a knee right before. I mean. You know, the moment right. is the right. moment that period in time of standing, saluting yeah. the flag, the national anthem, that's that should be for the American people. That should be sacrosanct culturally. I'm not saying legally, you know, people are legally allowed, but legally, these owners are allowed to fire their players. Legally, these owners are allowed to say you well, don't pull Jerry that Jones, crap. Right. Jerry Jones, Jerry Jones, whenever all this stuff first started, Jerry Jones said, if if you don't, if you take a knee, you're fired in my organization. And then he and then he come around. You could tell it was it was painful for him to drag him take a knee out there like he did. Yeah, I watched it last. Yeah, night. well, I think he believes that he'd have a he'd I have not just a, a mutiny on his hand with his own players, Mike. He, but he'd also have the possibility of people across the league and and also in the media saying that he's you know racially insensitive. You know, people. I, I promise right. you, you'd you'd have. And it's all about players. And it's all about players. It's all about black players. Come on. And he didn't want to him get a, a less proportionate number of those players, so he did what he had to do. But bottom line is he still dropped the ball with the Dallas Cowboys, and he still dropped the ball for the state of Texas. I can tell you're disappointed. I can tell you're disappointed in Jerry Jones and the Dallas Cowboys. I can tell it really bothers you, Mike. I, look, I thank you for your service and I, I appreciate your call. Um, yeah, I don't think that the people are saying, "Oh, Jerry Jones, he found a great way to." Mm, nah, I mean it was, a, it was a little better, but what's what's the point? None of this is going to do anything to make anyone's life any better. It just antagonizes one half or so of the country. Right. But n- none of this take a knee. Oh, we're, we're trying to raise awareness. This is not going to improve the plight of anyone in anything at all. It's just virtue signaling for super athlete millionaires. That's what this is about. They may not think so, but in terms of the reality of what will come from this virtue signaling for super athlete millionaires, that's it. And people that don't want to cross them in the league and, and uh, in the media. All right, we've got every line lit. So you know what we're going to do? We'll run to a quick break here, team. Uh, 844-900-BUCK. If we take calls, we'll have some spots open up. I want to I want to run through – I want to I hear your voices here. I want to run through a bunch of calls. So uh, stay with me on the other side of the break. We'll uh, hear you on this, and then we'll also get into some national security. I said next hour, I want to talk to you about this New York Times communism op-ed and also some North Korea stuff. And if I have time, Senate Foreign Relations Committee Chairman – uh, Menendez on trial. This stuff is amazing. And the fact that media is not really covering this is, it's just so blatant, 
so blatant that they they are fake news. That's I don't know what else to say. It's true. Welcome back, team. All right, John in Mississippi, WBUV. Uh, hey, what's going on, John? Sir, I think it's Donna. Donna. Hey, Donna. Hey, it says John on my list, but good to have you on. How you doing? I'm good. Look, I just got to, I'll try to be real quick. I was really disappointed in these NFL guys. When they knelt down, they were, they were pledging their allegiance, but it wasn't the high flag. I think they're just absolutely gone Democrat, radical Democrat. And I was really, really sorry when Villanueva, when he... When he backtracked? I I just think that's a shame. Yeah, it was a a shame. It it bummed me out, too. I've got it. What am I going to do with this jersey now? I'm going to, like, have to donate it or something. Yeah. I just just was really... In the arm, I had a lot of faith, you know? Yeah, no. Look, he's a great guy and a great American. I mean, he just he got caught in a difficult situation, so it it is it's it's not easy. I mean, he's trying to maintain good relations with his team. That's his living. I understand he respects those guys. It's a little political dispute, but that's why they should be kept out of the locker room, off the field, out of professional sports. That's how I feel about it. But Donna, thank you for calling in exactly. from Mississippi. I appreciate it. Thank you. Uh, Tim, also from Mississippi's WBV. Hey, Tim. Hey, Buck. Thank you so much. Shields high. Shields high. Thank you. Listen, you know. The uh, if you listen to the to the news, and I don't care hardly whose it is, you would think if you favor Trump, forget the language you use and all that. But if you support Trump's position on the NFL, you listen to the media, you would think you're the only idiot out there that does. And finally today, or maybe been late last night, Remington Research Group released a poll, and uh, they wanted to know essentially, you know, which side of this are you on? Are you on Trump's side? Or are you on the NFL side? Take a guess. What do you think the breakdown was on that poll? Well, I said 64% based on what the Daily Caller was that's, reporting. That, that's exactly right. 64 yep. to 25. And and I don't know. I mean, I understand the media. But, but the people, Roger Goodell is a dumbass, and he always has been. Goodell needs to get out of his tower and get into a state that doesn't touch the Atlantic Ocean or the Pacific Ocean and figure out that two people out of three in this country are on Donald Trump's side. And, and the, the, the disrespect that's being shown here, and you're right, this is going to do, it's going to do them absolutely no good. No good. And, and I am probably the biggest NFL fan on the planet. I've got three different subscriptions to DirecTV, and I have recorded every NFL game for the last five years and watched them during the week. But uh, I'm, I'm finished. I am finished with them. And, and Goodell needs to understand that he's got a brand that he's supposed to protect, he needs to figure out who is he protecting it from, because right now he is protecting it from from the wrong people. It, it, yeah, he, I think Goodell makes. I know the NFL is a nonprofit, which doesn't mean it's a charitable organization. A nonprofit just has to do with what it does with the money that's left over after they've paid expenses. <laughs> but they make thirty, or he makes thirty million dollars a year, which is a lot for a guy yeah. who I don't think is very good at his job. But Tim, man, great perspective, great call. Thank you so much for calling in from Mississippi. Ron in Virginia, listening on the iHeart app. What's up, Ron? Hey, Buck. How are you doing today? I'm good. I'm good, thank you. What's on your mind? Hey, I assume the NFL. <laughs> one for the gentleman. One for the gentleman who asked what you should do. If the gentleman asked that question, then he is struggling. 
go with what you know is true. Go with your gut. Go with your gut. Okay, so we'll move beyond that. The second is the one fella who said that he wasn't going to let them take football from him. And I am so passionate on this. I love my country. My children are so patriotic. It just, it bought, I mean, this is the kind of stuff that just wrecks me. Because my little, my my six-year-old daughter, my eight-year-old son, my 14-year-old son, they are so proud of that flag. When they came home and they found out what it was, the first thing they had me do is we had to stand there and say the Pledge of Allegiance to that flag. They understand the sacrifice of the men, the women, their grandfathers, their father, their sisters, their cousins who are all serving or have served. And if sacrifice, this, this flag has nothing to do with Donald Trump or anybody else, and they're stealing that away by blaming it on Trump. That flag is the most beautiful flag in the entire world. It represents so much to so many people. Regardless of how people want to trash it, we're the only country where everybody is flooding to get here legally or illegally. It doesn't make any difference. And I'm tired of seeing it stomped on. And I really believe that we need to make a stand to the NFL. Cut your subscriptions off. The last fella did just spoke kudos to you, buddy. I'm so proud of you. All Cut right. Well, well done. Well, well said, Ron. He's back with you now, because when it comes to the fight for truth, the buck never stops. Buck Sexton, back with you now in the Freedom Hunt. I saw last night there was a uh, a, a little trend on social media. I should probably spend more time putting aside my devices, but I feel like I'm some character in the political commentary matrix, and I, I cannot unplug uh, but I, I saw last night that there were a lot of there was a lot of uh, mockery of a New York Times piece and the official Twitter account for the Times. This was not the headline of the piece, but the Twitter account for the New York Times uh, wrote the following: "For all its flaws, the communist revolution taught Chinese women to dream big." And then it had a link to a piece. How did women fare in China's uh, communist revolution? And it had such uh, pieces of, uh, I was going to say wisdom sarcastically, but whatever you want to call it, it, it had such analysis of the following. Well, the communist revolution brought women more job opportunities. It also made their interests subordinate to collective goals, uh, et cetera, et cetera, and goes on and talks about the trials and tribulations of of women in communist China. Now, I'm telling I want to tell you this because we don't often get the truth, especially when it comes to history and the history of state control, the history of collectivization. Uh, in fact, but a few years ago, or maybe it was more like a decade ago now, I'm getting old, I can't remember. Uh, Thomas Friedman, among the most overrated columnists in the history of of journalism, in the history of people getting paid for their scribbles, uh, was singing the praises of a command control economy like China's. There was, for a time, an intellectual fashion among journalists that if we were only a little bit more like China when it came to our economy, when it came to the way our government interacted with 
markets and the private sector, we would be better off. That's died down a bit. But the notion that more government control and a government that is more powerful in your life, in your day to day, is a better thing, is at the very core of the Democrat Party. The Democrat Party is the statist party. It is the party of of the state. And they do not ever put the same uh, ferocity into their critiques of collectivist government schemes of central planning. Venezuela is another case study of this, a recent and ongoing one, where years within a few years, back in 2012, their editorials about how Venezuela is doing a good job and they're redistributing wealth and look at all look at all the social justice success of Venezuela. That was a few years ago. Now it's anarchy, food shortages, medical shortage medicine shortages, people don't have drinkable water, they don't have bread, there's widespread violence, there's political repression, there's tyranny. There's, uh, it's just a, a complete and utter mess. That's right now. That's a country that not long ago was actually pretty well off by global standards, very well off. And as you know, it has the largest proven oil reserves in the world, although that oil needs some refining. It's not, uh, the, not the easiest uh, oil to get to market. But Back to why I'm talking about China and the uh, communist, uh, the communist editorial that was just published in the New York Times, talking about women's struggles and some of the upside. Trying to find the upside to the role of women in communist China under Mao, and this led to a lot of mockery. Where you know I saw, um, I think uh, what Ben Shapiro tweeted out, you know. Put aside all its ill, put aside all the ills of cancer. It does create work for radiologists. I think he tweeted something like that or someone tweeted. But lots of variations on that. Right. You know, if you put aside, you know, sawing your hand off accidentally when you're trying to cook food, um, at least you get to use that bandage that you've been keeping in the bottom shelf. Right. You can do this absurd, uh, this absurd theorizing about a situation with any number of things. And I I am always amazed when historians or forget historians, just when people in the media talk about China and they'll refer to the Great Leap Forward as as though it was, you know, not a great not a great time economically. Great Leap Forward made some mistakes. What you won't hear is that the Communist Party in China, which still runs that country, by the way. Communist Party that still runs our only near peer uh, global competitor, which is China, and which is just going to be increasingly a competitor on the world stage going forward, no doubt about it. The same Communist Party that runs it today, with some modifications, I know, to opening up uh, markets, and but the same Communist Party ran the country during Mao's Great Leap Forward, 1958 to 1962. And Democrats either don't know this or don't want to talk about this, or it's a combination of both. But let me tell you that in terms of sheer numbers, and the the evidence is now in, the archives have started to open up, there have been scholars looking at this for, uh, for years now. In terms of sheer and absolute numbers, the Great Leap Forward was among the worst man-made catastrophes in all of history 
In fact, the original estimates, which were 30 million dead, uh, have been revised through uh, particularly the scholarly efforts of Frank DeCotter, who is a, is a renowned historian who has a great book, although it's difficult reading, Mao's Great Famine. Great as in very big, right? Not, not great as in in any way a, uh, anything other than a, an atrocity. But here's what you won't hear about. The way they talk about this is that it's a famine and that it's just something that happened and that it's the equivalent of some technological shortfalls and bad weather. The Communist Party in China still says it was bad weather. But as we have the calls for single payer getting louder in this country and more government control over the economy and the Democrats just want to be in charge of more and more of your life, understand that there are few cases of government control, few cases of a collectivist approach over the individual with more horrific consequences than what happened in China. In fact, you could argue that it is the worst case of collectivism in history. And I think numerically speaking, you may be right. 45 million dead because the government was in control of everything because the individuals had no rights and because there were people who believed they were true believers at some level. And then many bureaucrats down the line in China who enforced the will of those who thought that they were doing something great. You, you might notice some similar thinking with climate change activists. You know, wh- whatever cost we have to pay, it's saving the planet. So we're going to have to just go for it. The thinking among the Communist Central Committee, uh, the heads of the Communist Party at the time, Mao and his inner circle was... Sure, this might be rough. There might be some bumps in the road, but it'll get better. And this is necessary for us to be a great global power. Within four years, 45 million people were dead that would not have been dead otherwise. Keep in mind, this is not just, oh, a lot of people. No, as a direct consequence of central planning, as a direct consequence of government control, that was the problem. It wasn't weather. It wasn't. Uh, a plague that just kind of happened. It wasn't a natural disaster. It was a man-made disaster. It was the so-called smart people at the top of the power pyramid in China making all the decisions about the economy. We're going to take people out of their villages. We're going to put them into industry. We're going to get rid of the previous farming and agrarian culture, and we're going to make everybody come into communal farms. And then they will have to go to a canteen, a a centralized food distribution place. And and this will all be more efficient and it'll be it'll be great for everybody. And this was about social justice. Once again, it was about making sure the poor had enough to eat. And this is how Mao sold it to the Chinese people. And this is within living memory, everybody. I'm not talking about sometimes I like to talk about really, really old stuff. You know, we'll probably talk about ancient, ancient Greece soon again. But this is within living memory. This is not that long ago. 45 million people dead. And here's the part of it. And this is why, if you want to know more, and I, don't, I believe that this is, uh, this is willful ignorance. This is a, a decision that has been made by the leftist elite in this country, by journalists and academics. They don't really want you to know just how bad it was in China. They'd like because, look, a lot of America, especially this period in history, a lot of us don't really you know, we focus on Europe, World War Two and 
you know, China doesn't really get a lot of attention from us in the 20th century. But what they don't want is that you, your children, or anyone else listening or anyone else out there starts to draw some conclusions about how, wait a second, you mean that a government not long ago could, through its economic policies and its uh, disregarding of the rights of the individual, cause tens of millions of people to die horrible deaths? The answer is yes. And now this is the second most powerful country in the world after us. So it's relevant. It, this is relevant. It's relevant to our own discussions about government, and it's relevant to uh, what's going on right now, with certainly with China, but also in all of our disputes and debates over statism and the direction of our own uh, our own economy and, and the federal government's role in all of this. I'm not saying that the federal government's going to make us all starve. I'm saying that the same principles of central planning, of social justice that were at work in, or that are at work today in Venezuela and has destroyed that country, were at work in China and created one of the greatest disasters of the 20th century, certainly in the top three. And you could argue, you know, it's Holocaust, Stalin, uh, Stalin's great purges, the Soviet Union, the gulags, and then Mao. I mean, and, and how are you even making those distinctions? I mean, this is, this is tough to... Uh, tough to do. Um, this is the math of of of, a, of widespread atrocity, of unthinkable numbers. But it's even worse than just a famine, and that's what I'm going to talk to you about on the other side of this break. And then I think we'll talk about North Korea, and then probably get into the Menendez trial, so we can lighten things up a little bit because this is going to be intense. But I want you to know what central planning. I want you to know what government control did in China in living memory. It's now the second most powerful country in the world. It is our nearest competitor. It's a country we have to keep the closest eye on going. I know Russia right now, Russia, Russia, but China's our biggest concern economically from a national security perspective. And some of this mentality from the Great Leap Forward still lingers. I mean, you still have this isn't like, oh, China was communist then, but now everything's cool. We can talk about the atrocities of Imperial Japan and be like, well, I mean, you know, Japan's a very different place now, very different government. And that's totally true. China's different, but there's still some of this there. And it's much worse than just a famine. This isn't like this. This isn't just a bad, a bad harvest. This isn't about crops going bad. This isn't about uh, just mistakes made in good faith. This is about systematic uh, eradication of people who were weak, who were hungry and who got in the way of the glory, the so-called glorious aims of a central uh, central planning scheme from government experts. It is worse than anything that I think any of you have ever heard about in terms of what's gone on, what what went on. All right, team, returning to the uh, New York Times editorial put out under the headline on Twitter, for all its flaws, the communist revolution taught Chinese women to dream big. Uh, I would be remiss if I did not point out that China has a one has had a one-child policy for a long time, that China has waged truly waged a war on women as a function of national policy and that has led to horrific uh, horrific consequences for women in china for decades but uh, i'm i'm also now focusing or i want to focus back on the famine which affected women men affected everybody at the period that they're talking about dreaming big oh let's write an editorial about people are dreaming big in communist china uh in in this period of time under the reign of mao uh, when Mao Zedong is 
calling the shots. And if you want the, the best book on this the, that I know of is, is Frank DeCotter with, with Mao's Great Famine. This is what they won't tell you. This is what they, even if you look, you look this up here and there and maybe some people will know, oh, wow, yeah, 45 million people died. And this is based on access to the archives that have just recently been opened up. Here's what they won't tell you, though. About 3 million of them were actively, were, were murdered through state repression, through state violence. Many of them tortured to death. The, uh, at the level of various provinces in China, there were records kept by the communist parties, communist entities in charge, and the local commissars. And they did horrific things to people because once starvation starts to set in, people become desperate. When someone can't feed, them, uh, feed himself or herself, when they can't feed their family, they start to do things that break party doctrine. Once everyone sees that there's not going to be enough food, they don't want to be told to, that they have to show up at the collective farm anymore. They don't want to be told that they have to do what the government tells them to do. So what does the government do then? Well, in the case of China, they don't, they don't change. It's not representative to the people. The smart people were in charge. The state was calling all the shots. So they engaged in vicious violence and repression against the people. Uh, they, th- this is in the, in the archives that have been uh, uncovered in recent years. There are detailed reports of people d- being severely punished for the crime of stealing a few pieces of grain from the collective commissary. Severely punished meaning literally tortured to death in front of family members to set an example for the rest of the village. In some cases, in fact, Communist Party members made Chinese uh, peasants execute members of their family. In one very notable case, they made a father bury his son alive for the crime of stealing a handful of grain. Uh, the atrocities were, and this was only over the over the course of four years, but the state repression, the murder of three million people doesn't get nearly enough attention. I think very few people even know about it. I think very few people have heard of how bad it really was in China. And it's not because the records aren't there. It's not because there's a historical dispute about this. China's lying about it, of course. The Chinese government lies about it. They don't want you to know the truth. No surprise here, right? Governments lie to their citizens, especially when they've done really bad stuff. But also, the notion of a government that's in control of the economy and control of your everyday life for a glorious purpose, whether it's climate change or social justice or redistribution of wealth, you know, economic inequality, all of these things that the Democrat Party today is trying to jam down your throat. We have examples in history of where this can go, and they go to some horrific places. They always will say, oh, well, communism wasn't impl- implemented properly. That's that's one of the excuses. Or in the case of China, it's, oh, well, you know, it was a bad harvest year or a couple of years of bad harvests. No, starvation was used as a weapon. And that's the that's another component of the story that needs to be told is that the Chinese Communist Party decided uh, all the way down to the village level after they had made people destroy their homes. And there was all of this, you know, we're going to we're going to turn our our plowshares into industrial machinery and that we're going to get rid of the food, uh, the the productive farms and and all of these different policies coming together at the same time. Incredibly uh, 
disastrous and, and destructive for the economy and for the people that are trying to feed themselves. And then uh, you had the state uh, state repression, and that was in the form of violence, but also in the form of just denying people food, denying people the little food that they needed just to stay alive. They were already in a state of constant hunger, but then they were just cut off. And then there was no food. And that was a part of the masses. So starvation was used as a weapon to punish people who spoke out against the policy, to punish people who were considered disloyal, or just to make an example of someone so the others would fall in line until they starved to death, or it didn't matter. Because it was a government that was not responsive to the people, and it was a government that was run for the benefit of those who were in charge, who were supposed to know more, and it was all about the collective good. It was all about group and identity, and uh, uh, identity at the collective level. It was not about uh, anything other than what the revolution was supposed to be. You know, this great idea, this great leap forward, it was a complete and utter disaster for the Chinese people. 45 million dead, as I was saying. 3 million murdered, and then many millions more forced to starve to death, and then many millions more after that just starved to death as a natural consequence of there being no food. And this was in the 20th century. And I I doubt any of your... If you're listening, you have uh, school-age children. I doubt any of them have been told this, right? Fair to say? You think the Democrats, they, they don't have access to uh, to Amazon, to bookstores? No, they know about this. They just don't want people to think about it, to talk about it. They'd rather write, as they did, about how the communist revolution taught Chinese women to dream big. Well, millions of them were starving to death. But other than that, maybe they were having some big dreams. And the New York Times should be ashamed of itself, but it's incapable of shame. He's holding the line for America. Buck Sexton is back. Um, okay, uh, where was I? Oh, yeah. Well, one before we because the North Korea thing is going to be intense. So it's, it's kind of an intense hour of the show. I know we did a lot of NFL in the first hour. Next hour, we'll have some friends joining. We'll talk about some other things. And I'll tell you about, if you if you stay with me, I'll tell you about the hip-hop police. That's a thing you may you probably have not heard of. And I will tell you. And I, I know some of the hip-hop police. So and so you got to just stay with me. And there'll be some, uh, that's, a, that's coming at the end of the show. But at this hour, there's some, some stuff to know. I, I think that, it's important. I, I know that that discussion of um, Mao and the Great Leap Forward, it, it can seem a little buck. I mean, this that's history that matters because it informs the way we think about governments today, both the Chinese government, our own government. Um, you know, they, they didn't set out to starve everyone. They just made really bad decisions, but they also thought that they knew better and that people didn't have rights that they were just instruments of the state. There's some very baseline lessons that are applicable for all of us. I know, I'm, so I'm going back down the um, going back down the Great Leap Forward discussion, but, and uh, we are going to be talking about North Korea in just a second. But first, um, it's, uh, I, I guess you could say it's, it's a good day for freedom in Saudi Arabia? Hmm? Uh, this is from the New York Times, which I was just talking about before. Saudi Arabia agrees to let women drive. They announced uh, earlier today that uh, they will end a longstanding policy, according to the Times here, quote, that has become a global symbol of the oppression of women in the ultra-conservative kingdom. 
the change, which will take effect in June of next year, was announced on state television and in simultaneous media event in Washington. The decision highlights the damage that the no driving policy has done to the kingdom's international reputation and its hopes for a public relations benefit from the reform. Well, look at that. Yeah, women in uh, Saudi Arabia will be able to drive. Next thing you know, they won't have to dress like uh, beekeepers. It's crazy, right? You know, they show a little ankle. You know, I mean, get to get to see a little uh, little flash of some wrist sometime. What's up? What's up, lady? Why don't you show me that wrist? Ooh, little ankle. Um, so Saudi Arabia, b- baby steps in the direction, uh, baby steps in the direction of freedom, but nonetheless, okay. This is at least a move in the right direction. We could say that. Um, I wonder, and uh, I'd I'd have to do some deep diving into all things Saudi recently, but, you know, the Saudis aren't quite as untouchable as they were once thought to be, uh, in large part because the shale revolution in this country, which another area of discussion I think doesn't get nearly enough attention, you know, with all these climate change, well, climate change, well, I mean, it used to be we were running out of oil. We'd reach peak oil. You'd have all these discussions about it. And, oh, what are we going to do? And we're stuck in the Middle East because of oil. That was the thinking in the 90s and into the 2000s. But honestly, we have we have so much fossil fuel that has come online now because of technology. Oh, look at that. Technology changes things. It's almost like the climate change people might want to chill because we are decarbonizing over this is without uh, without any uh, aberration here we are decarbonizing over time we we're using coal and we're using oil and we're using natural gas and we're, so this is all happening and the technology also is increasing the ways that we can get energy and everything's more energy efficient and that's all happening the market is allowing that to happen we don't need all these dictates from green energy zealots out there but the Saudis used to be, oh, you know, Saudis turn the spigot on, they turn the spigot off. You know, OPEC gets to determine prices. OPEC wants, you know, more in the market, less in the market. And we're all like, excuse me, OPEC, please don't be mean to us. There was this sense that, you know, the Saudis were able to just drop the oil hammer on us. And we're like, oh, no, what will we put in our SUVs? It's changing a little bit. I mean, Saudi Saudi output is still large. It's still a big piece of the market. But keep in mind that they thought they could keep production levels up and that they would reach a point where shale uh, was not price competitive. I know I'm getting into an oil discussion. Those of you listening, I mean, we'll talk about some of the other stuff, and, and I'll talk about North Korea in a minute if I can. Um, the, uh, the the Saudis thought that they could force the price down and, and that essentially shale would be too costly per barrel if the Saudis kept the uh, the oil production going on their end. But nope. Oil is super cheap right now, still. And just wait until fracking technology expands to other parts of the world, major producers, other producers, you know, Russia, Mideast countries. You know, once they start fracking, they can frack, too. So we're not running out of oil anytime soon. In fact, it's probably going to keep going, which means that the Saudis leverage is less which means that they're imperious, you need us, America, for our oil and our stability. That attitude, I'm not sure we're going to take that attitude from Saudi Arabia anymore. Well, it's a little, little different, a little different now. We're not like, please, great Saudi kingdom, don't crush us with your oil prices. You know, we're not all freaked out about it anymore. We're kind of like, you know what, Saudi? You guys have been exporting 
your terrible jihadist philosophies all over the world, using oil money to do it, I should note. If you were to pick one country that is responsible for the spread of the worst ideas in Islam throughout the world, it would be Saudi Arabia. I mean, there's no question. Saudi Arabia, number one on the list. Now that we're allied with the regime, we're making some progress. Okay, fine. But uh, the Saudis have a lot to atone for. They're a lot to be ashamed for. Um, I don't know if they, I, I doubt they are, but nonetheless, the modernization may be occurring now. Now, this could just be a PR thing. And, you know, they're, look, they're still going to be lopping off heads in the public square with scimitars for people that steal or, you know, for they're still going to be punishing uh, homosexuals in terrible ways. And, you know, it's not like Saudi Arabia is turning into Switzerland. Right. We, we all get that. They're letting women drive. I mean, you know, it's it's a start. I mean, this is almost it's almost like a Borat joke. Right. You could hear like. In my country, the women cannot drive. Uh, but you know, and now you're like, oh wow! In Saudi Arabia, they can actually, they can actually drive. Okay, or starting in June, not yet. You know, don't, let's not get crazy. Uh, but this is a change that might be tied much more, I think, to the Saudis' anxiety over their place in the world now that uh, their energy dominance is not what it was, and the geopolitical realities are also. Uh, shifting rapidly under their feet so we'll see okay i I went i just wanted to note women will be able to drive starting in june so there's that um hopefully we can also get them to not have to wear a face veil so that their peripheral vision is a little better that would be helpful too because otherwise you'll have a lot of crashes and then you're gonna have microaggressions where people are saying that saudi women drivers are you know not as good as male drivers but it's really because they can't see through the face veil you know but we'll get to that that'll come that'll come later on that'll come down the line uh, I think I, I, Betsy DeVos has gotten rid of the Title IX guidance from the Obama administration. That's very interesting. Probably going to get into that tomorrow. And I want to spend some real time on the Menendez story of uh, Senator. Whenever I say that, I always think of weren't there the, the, the two brothers, right, who killed the uh, right. Wasn't that the. Yeah. So whatever. I'm just saying in, in my mind, I associate the, you know, Menendez, the Menendez, when people say the Menendez story, I think there's actually a made for TV movie or one of those like true crime movies about the Menendez brothers come out. But I'm talking about the Senator Menendez story, uh, which is a just juicy political, I mean, a delicious political story. It's got it's got everything. It's got, you know, it's got a bunch of, uh, I, I mean, I don't, I, I'm a, I don't know how old they are, but I see the photos. These are attractive young women in, in bathing suits and being flown on private jets and political favors and threats and thuggery and all kinds of, I mean, it's crazy, big scams. And media's like, meh, there's, yeah, there's a, there's, a, there's a trial. There's like a little trial going on with Senator Menendez. You know, we're not sure what the outcome's going to be, but, you know, we're, think, we're thinking that, you know, it's, you know, we'll see. We're not really sure. I mean, compare that to, and I, I'm and I'm getting ahead of myself because I pro, I want to spend the, the time on this tomorrow. But compare that to uh, the way they talked about Chris Christie and Bridgegate. I mean, they acted like Bridgegate was was the um, the invasion of of Normandy or something. I mean, that was at MSNBC. I, it was it was comical, except they were serious, so it was scary. How excited they were about Bridgegate. I'm going to guess that they're not really the the, the head of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee using his office to threaten government employees to do favors for his like international uh you know babe traveling service or whatever he had going on um I- i'm i'm going to assume that uh 
that they well that they should think that that's an interesting story, but they don't. The team yesterday, uh, the news broke that North Korea was claiming that it had a right to shoot down uh, U.S. jets outside of North Korean airspace, uh, which would no doubt result in the in a reprisal in a response that I think would be. Uh, <laughs> Devastating. I don't even know what we would call it. I don't know if we would annihilate the North Korean state, but it would be something close to that uh, if they were to start shooting U.S. planes out of the sky. And uh, North Korean rhetoric continues to be as belligerent as possible, but that's also not new. My concern, though, is that there is this habit that members of the media have to think of foreign nations because we have this we're all you know, we're all the U.N. and the, the internationalist mindset that people who want to think they're smart on these issues, the mindset that they fall into just as a as a function of habit. Is that every country is, you know, kind of sort of sort of the same, you know, we all love our children, you know, we all want the same things. Well, we may all love our children, but we don't all, in fact, want the same things. And. The North Korean state does not love its children, actually. The North Korean state treats human beings as having no worth. They are just mean a means to an end for propping up the regime, doing its bidding, doing its fighting. And Kim Jong-un and the Kim regime and all of his you know, top generals and those around him are just a parasite on the body of the North Korean people. They're just parasites. Yes, they're in charge, but they're also destructive. And siphoning off the uh, the labor and the and the the, hum- the very humanity of the people that they're supposed to be taking care of and if not representing, if not a democracy. Although isn't it amazing the Democratic People's Republic of Korea, right? It's it's almost parody, except it's so tragic. Um, the, the North Korean regime doesn't want the same things that we do. They their leadership, as as much as members of the press may want to believe. That Kim Jong-un and Trump are, are, you know, kind of morally equivalent. Now, Kim Jong-un is a a disgrace to humanity, is a vile mass murderer who presides over a massive prison camp, essentially, where just there's different treatment for different prisoners, but they're all in a prison, including his some of his top people. And there was that story I saw yesterday on Fox where there were the claim was uh, being made that the assassination of Kim Jong-un's brother in the Air- International Airport in Malaysia was meant to be horrifying, brazen, out there for everyone to see. It's like a mob hit out on the street in broad daylight in front of a lot of onlookers. That could be sloppy, but it could also be to send a message. And Kim Jong-un killing his own half-brother was sending a message. That's why they smeared VX gas on his face. Um, but... You really also should hear the words of the parents of Otto Warmbier, who was a student visiting North Korea. They said he pulled down a poster and they visited untold, unknowable horrors upon one of ours, an American. And the reprisals have not been nearly enough because we've already done all this economic stuff against North Korea. We already have them so thoroughly sanctioned. But you should hear what the parents of Otto Warmbier had to say. They were on Fox News. And this, if you want a window into the depravity 
of the North Korean regime. This is what they did to a, a college student. He could be from anywhere. Yeah, he's one of ours, but he's a young guy. He didn't hurt anyone. He wasn't trying to do anything bad. I don't think he did anything bad at all, by the way. I think they just wanted to, they just, they're spiteful and vile. The North Korean regime is vile, evil, actually evil. And here's, if you want to know what evil sounds like, what the description of it is, listen to the parents describe what had been done to their boy. This was on Fox News. But who decides what is offensive and what is acceptable? This is not, sorry, this is not, uh, is this is the wrong the clip. Search for truth. So can we, do we have his parents? Parents of Otto Warmbier. Somewhere in our uh, in our clips here, which I wanted to play for you, we are unfortunately having a technical difficulty with it. But they said that I, I will now paraphrase. That was obviously Jeff Sessions speaking today at Georgetown on free speech. Pardon me for the um, the switch up. They said that his teeth his teeth had looked like they had been rearranged with pliers when they found him. This is when they brought when the son was brought back to the states. They said that he was making horrible shrieks, that he was blind, that he was in terrible pain. And this is how North Korea handed him back to the United States. And he died soon thereafter. He was effectively brain dead when they handed him over. An evil, evil regime. If I get the chance, I'll play the clip of the parents for you um, later on in the week. Apologies for the uh, technical difficulty there, because I know we built up and you wanted to hear that soundbite. We will uh, get to it probably then um, tomorrow or later on in the week. He's holding the line for America. Buck Sexton is back. All right, welcome back, Team Buck. Freedom Hut is rocking, and uh, we have certainly been covering all of the latest from our uh, Republican Party uh, on the congressional side in particular lately. And it doesn't look like things have been going all that well recently, but I want to give you another perspective. We have Kaylee McEnany on the line. She is the RNC's spokesperson, and we're going to talk to her about all of the things going on right now with the Republican Party. Kaylee, great to have you. Thanks so much for having me, Buck. I, I remember uh, I remember back in the day doing doing real news and then your meteoric rise at CNN. Now you're RNC spokesperson. It's like we're all growing up, Kaylee. It's amazing. I know. Gone are the yesterdays when we had so much fun on real news. I know. Real I news was it. great stuff. Well, congrats again on the RNC gig. So t- tell me, you know, and I know you're giving us the RNC line. That is, in fact, what we are asking you for here. Right now, a lot of folks listening, Kaylee, are uh, a little agitated perhaps about the inability it seems to get something done on health care what do you say to them are you just going to counsel patients or what's going on well you know we've been very open and honest at the rnc that you know we are frustrated we understand the frustration of voters uh you know we had a lot of republicans sign on to repeal and replace i think it was 217 in the house 49 in the senate but that's not enough that's one vote short um it's you know, unacceptable. We need to repeal and replace Obamacare. I know the president expects something on his desk uh, that he can sign, something that materializes on the promises he made and many other Republicans made. And, you know, it's disappointing. It's disappointing that some senators who were promising repeal and replace for so many years, uh, in fact, when it's time to vote, are not voting that way. Yeah, it does feel like the Democrats, when they're in power, 
somehow managed to all get on the same sheet of music and get it done. The exhibit A of this would be Obamacare. That's right. Uh, but one thing I do say, and I think it is true, is, you know, we're not a party of lockstep liberal lemmings, you know, marching to the drumbeat of single payer. That can be frustrating at times. It's frustrating right now that there's, you know, a wide plethora of voices in our party. But it also, I think, makes our party more creative in the long run. I think on tax reform, we are going to be on, more on the same page. That's going to be rolled out very nicely. I'm confident of that. But, um, you know, it's frustrating. Sometimes having a wide diversity of voices means that things like repeal and replace don't happen immediately like we'd like them to. And talk to me about tax reform, because that's supposed to be coming up soon, right? We've been hearing about it, but I'm, I'm being told there's going to be action on this. And I figure, Kaylee, you're in the know. So what's happening? Well, that's right. Tomorrow, I think the president's going to reveal some pretty exciting details. Uh, we're going to see, I think, the face of who this is really going to help, who this is really going to affect. That is the middle class, blue-collar workers. Uh, it's very exciting because this has been being worked on behind the scenes for a very long time, not just the details of the tax plan, but also the communication strategy. I know at the RNC, we've been planning for this for weeks. There's been so much effort put into everyone getting on the same page, Health Ways and Means, Senate Finance, and the administration. And it's rare you see agreement between those three bodies But I think that now you're going to see a plan that's agreed upon, that's exciting, and one that's going to deliver the relief that a lot of the American people need. Now, Kaylee, I know you can't be in the guarantee business because you're spokesperson for the Republican National Committee and politics is messy. I get that. But I mean, something's going to have to happen on taxes, right? Because if nothing happens on taxes, I don't know what we're going to be able to tell people when it comes to voting in the midterms. Buck, it has to. Um, you know, I always sit back and I think what binds us together as a party, because we do have so many views in the Republican Party. Well, pro-life is one and putting money in the American people's pockets is number two. And we have to come together on that because those are the seminal principles of the Republican Party. But not only that, this should be an America concept. This should be Democrats. We should be seeing Heidi Heitkamp get on board and Claire McCaskill get on board. You know, these Democrats that are in the middle of the road and they believe in empowering the people not the federal government like the left would like to do, take your money and and just run with it. We're speaking to Kaylee McEnany, who is the RNC's spokesperson. Uh, Kaylee, the take a knee phenomenon of the last few days. Uh, I know you are engaged to a professional athlete, by the way. Best wishes. Um, Thank you. I, so I know that, you know, you're somebody who's going to games and understands professional sports and and uh, is somebody who's who's a fan as well as very close to it all on a personal level. Uh, what do you make of all this NFL stuff? I mean, I know it's a lot, but what's what, what's your initial take? You know, I, I sit back and, and I ask myself, we just talked about what binds together the Republican Party, right? Well, what makes America, America? Because we all disagree on so many things. And to me, what makes America, America is putting your hand on your heart for the national anthem, saluting the flag, saluting our veterans, you know, saluting these core American values. And to see someone take a knee, an absolute disrespect for our servicemen and women, try to claim that it has nothing to do with that. Well, guess what? It has everything to do with that. And I just want to echo what one local radio host said, one veteran said to her. He said, you know what? I would just like to hand some of these players a folded flag, and maybe then they'll stand for an unfurled flag. And to me, that's the heart of this. Stand for our veterans. Find another time to protest, but take those two minutes and stand for the men and women who've bled and died so that you could play a sport. Amen to that. Um, I, I, one more on on politics, Kaylee. You were, and I remember because I was over there too, 
uh, a a stalwart defender of President Trump in the primary and also in the general election, despite the various and, and sundry uh, on-air ambushes you were treated to time and time again. You can plead the fifth on that, but I was there. I saw it. Uh, and you, you, you did a great job putting on the boxing gloves and throwing down on air. However, uh, now you're at the RNC, and I know you have to take a 30,000-foot view of everything going on with the party what would you want people to know or, or what can you tell us about your perspective right now on how President Trump is working with the Republican leadership and Republican Congress? Look, he's doing a great job. He is an active, engaged president. He's picking up the phones. He's making calls. But at the end of the day, as you know, Buck, uh, Article 1 means that Congress makes the laws and the president signs them. If you look at what the president has done in his executive capacity, it is it is wide and vast. We're sending regulations. Uh, he's done everything he can to fix the VA. The list is long. Uh, same with immigration, the travel pause. But he can only do so much. Republican lawmakers need to get their act together and line up behind the president. One person won a national election. That would be President Trump. And it's time to recognize that and get things done because we owe our voters that much. Kaylee McEnany, RNC spokesperson and uh, old friend. Kaylee, great to have you. Thanks so much for making the time. We appreciate it. Come back soon. Absolutely. Always love talking to you, Buck. Thanks, Kaylee. Oh, man, it's uh, okay. So, you know, there's there's some there's some stuff to be frustrated about. I feel like we all established that. But there's also some ways that all this can work out. Maybe they do get it together on health care at some point in the future. But I, I would just want to note that. A big problem here is that no one wants to no one wants to be the one. And I'm talking about within the Republican Party. Forget about more generally. And, you know, you got so many Americans right now are like Antifa. I mean, they just make no sense. Antifa, um, as Trump says. But uh, so many Americans right now are. Well, put that aside. So many Republicans right now, I think, aren't willing to make the case uh, that there's going to have to be trade offs here. Meaning that, sure, we can have more free market reforms in healthcare, but that means that some people are going to have to pay the price, in a sense, for making bad decisions. I.e., if you don't get healthcare, there will be consequences to it. Not consequences like you won't get treatment. We got to treat people. Nobody can. Nobody can be allowed to. Nor were they. I should note before Democrats did all this. You know, die in the street because they're not getting healthcare. That's unacceptable. But. If people need to, uh, you know, get on a, a long term payment plan or deal with the financial consequences of refusing to get insurance, that has to be a part of this or else what we're talking about is just one endless series of subsidies and no one will really speak the truth. If we're going to talk about tax cuts and we're also going to be a party, and you know, we don't talk about it's interesting, isn't it? We talk about the Republican Party much more now. We speak less often about conservatism. I think that's largely a a function of who the president is, because uh, I don't think anyone could make the claim that Trump is a dogmatic conservative. I don't think any I don't think his biggest defenders make that claim. I don't think Trump makes that claim. So looking at what the future is going to be of the party, I understand that it's there's a lack of clarity. Um, but when you're when you're talking about tax cuts all the time and not also talking about reductions in spending, you're, you're going to have, at least in the short term, uh, more added to the national debt. And you can't be the Republican Party that's been warning about the dangers of a debt for 
decades now and just decide that all of a sudden it doesn't matter because you like to spend money too. And I, I think that happened much more than many of us are, are willing to um, willing to say under the Bush administration. Uh, or I shouldn't say willing to say, but we, we don't think about it because Bush's presidency was really defined by the war on terror, Iraq, Afghanistan. We don't spend much time thinking about how he was, in fact, a president who increased spending and increased the debt. Not as much as Obama did, but it would be hard to make the case that President George W. Bush was a uh, fiscally uh, restrained chief executive of the federal government. So uh, no one's making the case right now. We're talking about infrastructure and how that might be bipartisan. That will be very, very expensive. We're talking about some tax cuts, certainly tax cuts at least for corporations. There will be expenses to that too. Uh, This is not going to be a, a straightforward uh, proposition where you can just cut taxes and the debt won't go up and everything is going to be fine. And I think that's a conversation that has to be had. Um, right now, I know they're, they're talking about lowering rates a little bit on the, on the top percentage. And, and I also feel like how much do you really care all that much about a one or a two or a three percent change in the top marginal tax rate? I mean, it's nice, but the Democrats will just switch it back as soon as they come in. Part of this has to be the implementation of, dare I say, conservative economic policies so that we can see how they function and see the benefits, the growth that we've been talking about that would come from tax cuts. We have to see the results. It can't just be the short term, yay, we got something done. And there are bigger conversations to be had here about the debt and about the transfer of wealth from one generation to the next that has been ongoing. But uh, that's conversations for another time. We've got a big race in Alabama. I want to talk to you about that. Uh, the Senate primary is coming down to a vote tonight. Got that and more coming up. The elites represented by Mitch McConnell, right, hold me in contempt, right? They think I'm a bad guy. They think I'm a dangerous guy. I wear their contempt as a badge of honor, okay? They, are, they, have, they have helped destroy this country. They have done nothing but allow economic hate crimes against the working men and women in the heartland of this country. The factories went to China and the drugs came in. Okay, we've got to stop it. Tomorrow in Alabama, the good folks of Alabama got a got a choice. This is Jeff Sessions' seat, Sean. You know how close I am to Jeff Sessions. I know how close you are to Jeff Sessions. Jeff Sessions has been our mentor. Jeff Sessions is a man with a pure heart and tough as boot leather. This seat is Jeff Sessions' seat. And that's why tomorrow I hope the folks in Alabama send another righteous man, a righteous man like Jeff Sessions. I hope they send Judge Moore. I hope they send Judge Moore uh, into the uh, into the runoff. All right, everybody, there is a race that is going to be decided uh, tonight down in Alabama, a Senate showdown between Luther Strange and Roy Moore, the former Alabama Supreme Court Justice. Strange is the Senate uh, Senate incumbent, the state's incumbent junior senator. So uh, let's get some ground truth as to what's going on here, or at least some, some inside uh, inside perspective. We've got Sarah Westwood on the line. She is the White House correspondent for the Washington Examiner. Sarah, thanks for making the time. Thanks for having me. All right, tell us about this race. What's going on? Why should we care? And what do you think is going to happen? 
Well, in this race, obviously, because it's Alabama, it's such a red state, there's a lot more focus on the primary because the Republican candidate is likely to become the next senator no matter what. So even though this isn't the general election, this primary is kind of deciding who is the next senator from Alabama. And on the one hand, you have Strange, who, like you mentioned, is technically an incumbent. But there are a lot of Alabama voters who don't necessarily view him as an incumbent. They think that they are suspicious of the way he was appointed by a governor who was later removed for corruption. Uh, they think that Strange has been too closely associated with Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, who is fairly toxic in Alabama. And even though President Trump has thrown his support behind Strange, in a lot of ways it's almost canceled out by the fact that uh, Mitch McConnell is so closely linked to Luther Strange. And then you have Roy Moore this conservative judge whose claim to fame is defending a monument of the Ten Commandments in front of the state Supreme Court. He's a local celebrity. He has a huge uh, popular backing, and he's really thriving among Alabama voters for the same reasons that Trump thrived uh, within that same core base of voters, which is that he's running as an outsider. He's running as a disruptive force for Washington, and right now, he's also leading in the polls. So so uh, former Alabama Supreme Court Justice Roy Moore wants to make Alabama great again. <laughs> you could say that, yes. Because I, I see he's got he got Steve Bannon, uh, our, our friend Dr. Sebastian Gorka, and uh, Sarah Palin all in his corner. Kind of an interesting split here on the Republican side. It is, it's very interesting to see that because obviously Sebastian Gorka and Steve Bannon are still fiercely loyal to the president on almost every other issue. And in the rally that they did hold for Judge Roy Moore over the past week, uh, they came out and blamed the fact that President Trump endorsed Luther Strange on him receiving bad advice, saying there are advisors around President Trump who are not necessarily serving him well, who are pushing him to endorse this candidate who is more or less a stooge of the establishment. And so it'll be very fascinating to see whether President Trump personally has enough influence with these Alabama voters to get them to vote for someone they're naturally skeptical of, or whether uh, just the idea and the spirit of Trumpism and disrupting Washington and not being politically correct is what is most appealing to them, and, and that would lead them to vote for Roy Moore. We're talking to Sarah Westwood, who's the White House correspondent for the Washington Washington Examiner, about this Alabama Senate primary showdown that's going on tonight. The polls are closing 7 p.m. Uh, local time there. So we just wanted to t- take a quick look at the polls as we've come into this. Moore is actually up 11. I feel like that should be surprising some folks. But do you think that recent... Uh, Republican establishment shenanigans or shortcomings, depending on how you want to put it, Sarah. Do you think that's part of why Moore is up, at least going into this? Yeah, I think that even though Luther Strange has not been in the Senate very long, and he's certainly not responsible for any of the dysfunction, he's too closely associated with it to be able to credibly run as an outsider, and that's what Alabama voters are clearly looking for. So even though the Luther Strange supported President Trump vehemently, on health care and was prepared to do so on tax reform. It's not clear that voters can distinguish strange from the rest of Washington, which they see as dysfunctional, which they see as insufficiently loyal to Trump. Roy Moore, on the other hand, has pledged to be something of an obstructionist in the Senate, and that's, I think, what's worrying uh, the establishment in order to fight for conservative 
values, and that's what's really appealing to a lot of Alabama voters. Uh, do you think Roy Moore, uh, or rather, do you think Luther Strange would rather not have had uh, Mitch McConnell, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell's endorsement going into this? I feel like Mitch's stock has been dropping lately. It certainly has, and I think from a symbolic perspective, you're probably right, it's harmful, but Mitch McConnell's endorsement came from millions of dollars from groups associated with the Senate Majority Leader, and that probably helped keep this race competitive up until the very end. There have been some folks who have speculated that were Roy Moore any other kind of Republican candidate, he would have been defeated easily by such an influx of outside cash, but because he is such a phenomenon in Alabama, household name, someone who is able to relate so clearly to this specific group of voters, that this enormous sum of money that's being poured into the campaign is still not enough to overcome his personal popularity. A very important point there, that the establishment comes with a lot of money. It is, in fact, the establishment, and there are advantages to that. I think that particularly in the uh, news analysis and talk radio space, the establishment is almost thrown around like a slur these days. But the establishment still got deep pockets, <laughs> and so they they have some uh, some cards that they can play at, at the table. Uh, one more for you, Sarah, before we let you get back to uh, covering everything down in D.C. Any any big takeaway, depending on who the winner is tonight in Alabama, what, what do you think the, the two possible takeaways would be if either Strange or Moore is, in fact, the victor? Well, if Roy Moore pulled it out, I think the prevailing take that you're going to see in the media is that President Trump is losing some of his clout, that he doesn't have as much influence with his base as he thought he did, uh, it's going to be spun as a knock on President Trump. But I actually think that if Roy Moore wins, it's a sign that Trumpism is alive and well in Alabama, that people still appreciate the lack of political correctness. They still appreciate the disruption factor, the brashness, that that is what, at the end of the day, appealed to them. And even though the Trump presidency, which was premised on all that, has not turned out to be a success so far, they're still willing to take a bet on somebody like that. So if Roy Moore wins, I think that it's a sign that Trumpism has not lost any of its luster. Sarah Westwood of the Washington Examiner. Thank you so much. Great to have you, Sarah. Thank you. All right, team, we'll be back in just a minute with some updates on the uh, disaster relief efforts in Puerto Rico and the politicization thereof, and also just a a bit of an overview on U.S. territories. What are they? When did we get them? And what does all of that mean? We've got that and much more coming up. He's holding the line for America. Buck Sexton is back. Again, I'd like to take a moment to send America's hearts and prayers to the people of Puerto Rico and the U.S. Virgin Islands. Both have been devastated, and I mean absolutely devastated, by Hurricane Maria, and we're doing everything in our power to help the hard-hit people of both places, Puerto Rico and the Virgin Islands. A massive effort is underway, and we have been really treated very, very nicely by the governor and by everybody else. They know how hard we're working and what a good job we're doing. As we speak, FEMA, our great first responders, and all available federal resources, including the military, are being marshaled to save lives, protect families, and begin a long and very, very difficult restoration process. I suppose, in a sense, it's entirely uh, unsurprising. It's, it's very predictable 
but it's still frustrating to see that there are people who are taking advantage of a tragedy, in this case, the uh, brutal hurricane and the, the aftermath of it uh, in Puerto Rico. They're taking advantage of it to push a political narrative, the narrative in this case that President Trump is somehow not doing enough. And it's mostly based on insinuation right now. I'm seeing commentators from various left wing networks and much of the Democrat media uh, referring to how, we're, you know, we're, we're not doing enough and it's shameful. Well, it's not a we situation that they're referring to. They're talking about or they're implying that the federal government isn't doing enough. And by that, they mean that President Trump is not doing enough. Uh, I think this is just coming out of a sense of frustration and desperation on the left because there's plenty of reporting already on how the response from the federal government under this administration, the response from the executive branch and its agencies, most notably FEMA, but others as well, and from the president of the United States, the White House, has been strong. They have been on this. They have been paying very close attention. And in fact, this has been a series of cases, I think, that highlight uh, good leadership from the federal government side. Um, th this is an area where the federal government clearly has a role to play. Um, we are sending in National uh, National Guard. We're sending in U.S. military to assist in some of these uh, hurricane ravaged regions, including to Puerto Rico, where we have a few thousand uh, U.S. armed forces have deployed as part of the uh, assistance and recovery effort. But the facts can't be allowed to get in the way of a narrative that's advantageous to the left. And so you start to see the early, uh, really the, the, the trial balloons from some members of the media where they just put it out there, yeah, the shameful response in Puerto Rico. And they wonder if they can get away with it before someone says, actually, the uh, governor of Puerto Rico has said that the uh, president and the FEMA response has been strong. That's not to say that this is uh, perfect or any situation involving the government is ever going to be perfect. But notice how the Democrats, the left, now have expectations or, or are pretending to have expectations of perfection from the federal government because Trump's in charge and it's disaster management and it's response to major uh, natural disasters, a series of them, whereas usually the federal government, they're just making all kinds of excuses for how it's doing the best it can. And because Democrats are the party of the state, they are statists. And the federal government is the most powerful manifestation of the big S state uh, in this country. But now they're flipping the script because the narrative is what is most important to them. And you're also seeing a fair amount of uh, coverage of whether or not we treat Puerto Ricans as though they are U.S. citizens in the media. I've been talking about their plight in Puerto Rico as much as I can. There are limitations in a political talk show like this. I'm not a straight news show, uh, and I, there's only so much I can discuss the disaster and relief and recovery efforts before one. I'm already touching upon information that a vast majority of you already know or can find instantaneously on the Internet. And two, there's just not that much value added from someone like me who has a background in national security and politics uh, weighing in on meteorological events. And it's just not it's not really what I do. So while 
thoughts and prayers go to the people of Puerto Rico. I, I just was in Puerto Rico earlier this year. I loved it there. It's a great place. I feel terrible for what's happening. Uh, there's only so much that can be said about it other than to keep everyone up to date, try to get uh, donations where possible to help in the recovery efforts and make sure the federal government is on it. But from everything we see, the federal government, the Trump administration is on it. And while the media coverage, I do think, would be a little bit more frantic if this were the mainland U.S., uh, I, I don't think that Puerto Rico is being forgotten uh, based on the coverage I'm seeing. It's not slipping through the cracks of public indifference. I also thought it would just be interesting for a moment uh, to update, well, I guess updating me as well as you, on the status of U.S. territories, because Puerto Rico is a U.S. territory. They're U.S. citizens. Uh, there are a few other territories like this, including the Virgin Islands, which was also hit by the hurricane, where you are U.S. citizens. It's U.S. territory. U.S. federal law all applies. Uh, but you don't have voting rights in Congress. And, and this is a legacy in, in some cases, uh, a legacy of the Spanish-American War, which started in uh, 1898, and we took the Philippines for decades and then gave the Philippines its independence. Notice how America gives countries back to the people. We did it with the Philippines. We did it with France, with really all of Europe in a sense, except for the U.K. Uh, this is a, a, an interesting history that I think isn't uh, taught enough in schools. The territories that are U.S. territories that are organized are Puerto Rico, which came into U.S. possession in 1900, the Virgin Islands, 1936, Guam, 1950, which has also become much more well-known because of Kim Jong-un's recent threats. And we also have the uh, Northern Mariana Islands, which came into our possession in 1978. So they don't have votes in federal elections. These are citizens, but they can't vote in federal elections. And they have a representative in Congress, but he cannot vote, but may vote in committee. So it's, you know, not not full representation. Um, and the U.S. also has a number of what are called unorganized territories, which, except for American Samoa, are uninhabited. Uh, so there's a bunch in the Pacific, the Johnston Atoll, Kingman Reef, and there's uh, a bunch in the Caribbean as well. So these are places where the U.S. does have control, but there's no people necessarily, at least no permanent residents on these islands. And so the status of them doesn't really uh, matter all that much from a representation point of view because there's nobody to represent. But obviously in Guam, Puerto Rico, the Virgin Islands, uh, we do, in fact, have permanent residents. In Puerto Rico, a few million of them, and uh, they are having a very difficult time right now. Um, Puerto Rico is talked about sometimes as the uh, 51st state uh, or, or as the possible 51st state. Uh, it's, I think it's also often forgotten how often or, or how recently uh, some states came into the union. People don't think about how recently Oklahoma and Hawaii and some of these states actually came along and, and joined the party or were, were made to join the party. So... I should note that uh, the U.S. Virgin Islands, unlike Puerto Rico and Guam, which were conquered, we, we took those through straight-up conquest. Uh, it was, uh, in fact, a purchase. That, that's how the U.S. got the Virgin Islands. We bought them from 
Denmark in 1916 from something called the Treaty of the Danish West Indies. We paid $25 million in gold. Uh, by the way, that's a great that's a great deal, I think. The Virgin Islands are only 40 miles east of Puerto Rico. They have been hit very badly as well, I should note, in the, in the hurricane or, and are in real need of assistance. But when we're talking about U.S. territories, those are the U.S. territories. Those are the places that, um, that we need to focus on. And in the northern Mariana Islands is the newest actual territory of the United States. They were part of the uh, Spanish Empire, and then after the Spanish-American War, uh, we let the Germans have them. And then in World War I, Japan uh, seized them. And then in World War II, we seized them back from Japan. In fact, they were liberated during the Battle of Saipan, which was a brutal, brutal uh, conflict. Um, and there are some other places that we have let go over time, um, including the Philippines, Cuba, and Micronesia, all territories we once had that we don't anymore. Anyway, those are U.S. territories, but most importantly, thoughts and prayers uh, to the people of Puerto Rico. Hey team, you ever have that moment where you are reminded of something that you had completely forgotten about and you think to yourself, oh yeah, that thing, I had forgotten about it. So this morning I am drinking my uh, Black Rifle coffee, which I of course mixed in some whole milk with it, because in the immortal words of Ron Swanson, skim milk is water that's lying about being milk, and I was enjoying it very much on the couch. And the first channel, whenever I turn on the TV, which is uh, an exciting thing for me because I have cable now and I haven't had cable and TV for, I don't know, six or seven years. So whenever I turn it on, it goes to this local news channel. It's local for New York City called New York One. That is somewhere to the left of Marxist in terms of its politics. I mean, they think Bernie Sanders is a sellout. But it's kind of fun sometimes because it'll show things about New York that I would never pay attention to otherwise, like a, a local electrical worker union strike somewhere. And, you know, they'll do like an interview with a union boss. And I'm like, oh, isn't that interesting? And here's union boss Sal Rastacherio. We are here for local 33rd for uh, fair wages and a fair work schedule. And that's usually what you get on New York One, the local news station here. But this morning, they were talking about the intelligence division of the NYPD. And I was like, oh, well, I used to work for the intelligence division of the NYPD. I was dealing with cases that fell under the the broad description of terrorism, mostly jihadist terrorism, either ISIS or Al-Qaeda inspired. But there were other units. And I've mentioned this to you before. I've told you about how there were... Uh, detectives who were focused on uh, anarchist terrorism and, and white supremacist Aryan nation terrorism. And, you know, we had these different units. Now, overwhelmingly, the busiest in terms of actual terrorism cases was the area that I worked on. But there was this other group, and I, I knew the guys, and they were really nice guys. I remember working with them uh, or just being around them in the office. Uh, but they were uh, the... They're called the hip-hop police. At least that's how they refer to them in the press. And they were an intelligence unit. This wasn't terrorism, obviously, but they were part of the intelligence division, which is very, very big. And they focused specifically on gang ties to the hip-hop community. 
And so they often came into contact with rap artists uh, or hip hop artists. And the, uh, you know, part of this was a community relations uh, project, I think. Part of this was uh, a form of outreach to the, the hip hop community and the NYPD, and they wanted to have good relations. But there have also been some gang activities linked to the hip hop police in the past. And so, uh, or rather, that the hip hop police have been, pardon me, have been trying to deal with. And I saw all of these uh, names in in the uh, report on TV that I that I recognize and that I know, and it's because of a lawsuit. There is a detective who is suing the NYPD intelligence division and suing senior uh, officers in the intelligence division for discrimination. And I know the detective who's bringing the lawsuit, and I I know the senior officers that are named in the lawsuit and I was just sitting there and you know I, I don't know if it's true or not or I have no opinion on that uh, I have no idea but I, I just was like oh yeah those guys how are they doing you know I wonder what they're up to these days and and also I'd completely forgotten about this unit that was the the hip-hop unit of the NYPD I just I, I had forgotten that this was a thing um, and sure enough I, I tried to, I'm not going to lie. I, I tried to, uh, you know, once or twice I was like, Hey, or do we, do we get like tickets maybe, you know, is it, is, no, no, it's not that kind of a, not that kind of a thing. And I was like, well, why not? I like hip hop music. I used to listen to a lot of hip hop in the nineties, believe it or not. I was, uh, as a New York city, uh, native, I was surrounded with hip hop music all the time. And, and I could actually sit here and if I, I could, I could uh, off the top of my head, give you quite a bit of lyrics from various 90s hip hop songs. It was all a dream. I used to read Word Up magazine, Salt and Pepper and Heavy D up in the limousine. You're welcome. You're welcome, America. You're welcome, Team Buck. Uh, everyone used to listen to a lot of Biggie, uh, the notorious B.I.G., a lot of Nas, a rap artist that I'm sure some of you are, some of you are not familiar with. A Tribe Called Quest was very big in my youth. Uh, Jay-Z, before he was quite so uh, famous as he is now. There are a whole bunch of them. And, and there are other... Uh, we used to say rap. I guess you don't say rap anymore. Now it's hip-hop. Uh, hip-hop is a cooler name, I think. I, I prefer hip-hop to rap music. But anyway, we used to talk about rap and listening to rap music. Uh, but the uh, hip-hop police, that's a thing. And uh, sure enough, it's in the news, and it reminded me, or I was reminded of my time in the NYPD Intelligence Division and getting to hang out sometimes with the guys for Hip Hop Police. In fact, I knew an officer who was part of the arrest of Lil Wayne, the well-known hip hop artist, for firearms possession. Really nice guy, the guy who arrested him. Uh, can't say that I know Lil Wayne personally, but I do believe he did some time for that firearms possession uh, here in New York City. He had a loaded... I think it was a loaded Glock, uh, a loaded Glock. I forget what model, um, but yeah. So the hip hop police just bringing me just memory lane watching uh, local news here in New York. Eh, it's a lawsuit about discrimination, but uh, forget about that for a second. I was like, oh, yeah, the hip hop police. By the way, that's not the official title of the unit, but that's what the press refers to them as. I, I forget actually what what they're technically called. I think it's just the under the gang intelligence uh, division or I don't know I can't remember now 
So anyway, memory lane for me today. And that's going to close it up for us here in the Freedom Hut. As always, I thank you for uh, hanging out. Uh, please do check out the podcast and uh, share it with a friend if you get a chance. It's Buck Sexton with America Now on iTunes. Also, anywhere, anytime across the country, you can listen to the show Buck Sexton with America Now on the iHeart app. Just go into the App Store and download the iHeart radio app and you can listen to the show uh, at your leisure so or leisure because I'm not British. Uh, and also, please do go to bucksexton.com slash store if you want to get some gear, T-shirts, hats, all kinds of fun stuff there. So as always, I uh, thank you and wish you all the best. And until tomorrow, shields high.